Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be speaking out of the book of Acts. All right, well, this morning we'll continue our study in Acts, in the book of Acts. I will be in chapter 25 today. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, if anyone needs a Bible, we have several over on the table. Acts chapter 25. We are nearing the end of the book of Acts. That's an amazing thing. It will be right over a year that it will have taken us to get through the book of Acts, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, precept upon precept, every word of God. Okay, And it's been an exciting journey through the book of Acts, at least for me it has been. I've enjoyed the study time through it. And we're nearing the end here. And Acts chapter 25 today, I will admit it was a challenge for me this week as I spent time and study preparing for this message. And there's a number of different reasons behind that. One of which, though, is Acts 25 is one of the more narrative chapters. Inevitably, you're probably going to sense a little bit as we read through it here that it almost seems like we're reading chapter 24 over again. We're going to see Paul once again standing before a governor. Now a king will be present as he prepares to share his testimony once again. And and 25 is really served best with 26 with it. However, we don't have the time for that here this morning. Furthermore, 26 is one of the most incredible speeches that we have on the part of the Apostle Paul. And so we'll get into 26 next week, and we'll hear and we'll study the words that he has to share with King Agrippa. But 25 for us today is, it was a bit of a challenge. I'll admit. And as I've been preparing for it and praying for it, there's other things, other events that happen throughout the course of the week that I pray this morning, that as I share from this Word, that in fact it would be this morning what the Lord has for us, that His Word would go forth, that hearts and minds would be transformed today, that you and me, that we would be ready to receive what the Lord has for us here. But it's a challenging chapter in that way, and I know many pastors who feel that way about this chapter. And so parts of it here will move through a little bit more quickly here this morning. And ultimately, and I love the fact that our time of worship this morning very much emphasized this because I hope what you'll see through the end of this year is an emphasis on the message of the gospel, an emphasis on Jesus Christ, that even in the midst of what may seem like narrative here, we can get a sense of what God is doing and the fact that Paul in particular is one who is committed to exalting the name of Jesus Christ. And so as we go to his word here this morning, if you would just agree with me in prayer, Father, we pause this morning and give you thanks for this day you have blessed us with. Lord, it is a beautiful morning. With the sunshine, Lord, it's a sign of your faithfulness, and I pray that we'd all see that for what it is, Lord, that you've given us a new day. You've given us life today. And with the breath that you've put in our lungs, Lord, may we praise you with it. May we offer you our lives, Lord, a living sacrifice, being willing to be completely surrendered to you, seeking, Lord, what you would have for us, how you would desire to use us. Lord, I pray that every aspect of our service here this morning, our time of worship already, our children's ministry, everything that's going on here, that it would exalt the name of Jesus Christ, that you would be pleased, Father, and that we'd grow closer with one another, closer to you, and we'd leave here today different, more in love with you, and as always, Father, having a greater understanding of you, knowledge of your will for us, or that we could please you, Lord, in all things. So, Father, bless our time together here, I pray. May we be ever so thankful of the fact that we have the Word of God, such a treasure that we can hold in our own hands, Lord. May we 
treasure it for what it is, Lord, and allow you in, through your spirit, Lord, to do work in our hearts. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we catch back up here in Acts 25, we'll, we'll start with just a few verses prior to this in chapter 24, verse 22. Now remember, Paul was on his third missionary journey and he came to a place where he felt the Lord calling him to go to Jerusalem. And though he met some opposition there as it related to his peers, friends, brothers and sisters in the Lord who suggested that he not go because of the danger that would await him in Jerusalem, Paul had a sense of calling, a sense of purpose. He knew that the Lord had bound him to go to Jerusalem. And it wasn't long after he arrived in Jerusalem that he was very quickly in the midst of a mob, a riot of individuals who wanted to take his life because of the message that he was preaching. He had only been there for a matter of days, and the violence came upon him. That didn't cause Paul to waver. Yes, he questioned himself. He questioned how it was that he may have shared the gospel, what he could have done differently. He very well may have felt like a failure after he had the opportunity to preach to the Jews and then to appear before the Sanhedrin, and each of those times it not going well at all. But if you remember in Acts 23, the Lord Jesus stood beside Paul. He manifested himself to him in some way, and he told Paul, be of good cheer. For as you have testified of me in Jerusalem, so you will testify of me in Rome. And so there, there was this encouragement to Paul of, I'm not done with you yet. I'm not done with you. I've got more work for you to do. I've got more ministry for you. And so continue on. In fact, you're going to go to Rome, Paul. And so that had to have been a great encouragement to Paul to know that his ministry was not over. And furthermore, the Lord's hand was upon him. That the Lord was going to keep him and protect him and carry him on to Rome. And so then there were the Jews who made a vow. They vowed that they were going to take Paul's life. Over 40 of them said that they would not eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Learning of that through God's providence, Paul was made aware of it, and then they made the commander aware of it, and so they set a whole garrison about Paul. They put him on a horse, and with what seemed to Paul like probably the entire Roman army, they escorted him to Caesarea, and that's where he's been up until this point. And when he gets to Caesarea, if you recall from last week, he has the opportunity to share his testimony, to defend himself, but to preach the gospel essentially before Governor Felix. And where we pick up here in verse 22 is after he has spent time sharing the word of God with Felix, we read in verse 22, but when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty, and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. Felix had heard. He learned more accurately, gained a better understanding of the way, as it was referred to, or Christianity. Felix developed a greater understanding of the Christian faith, and furthermore, we see by the fact that he gave Paul liberty, that he understood that he was recognizing that Paul was an innocent man. But more than that, he was hearing the gospel. The Word of God was gripping the heart of Felix. He was being convicted by the Holy Spirit of his sin. And it says in verse 24, And after some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. You see, Felix continued to listen to Paul, and there were a number of reasons why he continued to seek him out. We learn in the Word that, for one, he was hopeful that at some point Paul would give him money as somewhat of a ransom for his freedom. 
But further, I think, and partially because of his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jew, that they wanted to hear a little bit more from Paul. Maybe they were entertained by him. Maybe they thought that his message was rather interesting, that they wanted to learn more about what he had to say. And so they continued to listen. They continued to hear the gospel. They continued to hear the word of God preached. And it was getting a hold of them. It was doing something in them. Paul, in a way that only fearless Paul can, knowing that the Lord's hand was upon him and that he would keep him here before Felix, who was the only individual at this point that stood between Paul and his freedom, who Felix is living with in an adulterous relationship with Drusilla, that Paul, as he has the opportunity to share with them, talks with them about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Paul wasn't going to pull any punches. He was going to give them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wasn't going to sugarcoat his message. He was going to make sure that they understood where they stood. And as he reasoned with them about these things, it says that Felix was afraid. And this can be translated that he was terrified. It got a hold of him. The message impacted him. The Word of God was beginning to get a hold of Felix. Yet what we see happen here is that because Felix was afraid, because he began to fear likely what all of this meant, that for him to surrender to Jesus Christ may mean giving up some of the things of the world that he had come to possess or hold on to, that he says to Paul, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. And here's what we have to understand, that there are so many today who are saying the very same thing as Felix, even some of us within the church with the conviction of the Holy Spirit and things that the Lord wants to do in our lives. When that conviction comes, especially for those who are unsaved, when that conviction comes, we begin to, to fear, to become terrified over what that means. What does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? What might I have to give up? What might I lose? What is going to happen? And some, sadly, because of that, they let the fear get the best of them. And they fall short of accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And that's what happens here with Felix as he says, go away. I'll call for you when I have a convenient time. And the word says that meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Two years went by, and that convenient time never came. Felix was able to quench the spirit in his life, to continue to say no, to pass off the conviction of something else, to convince himself that what he was doing and the things of this world, they were more appealing to him than following after the Lord. The sad thing is, and we know this from extra-biblical texts, other historical documents, that within roughly two years of transitioning out of office, Felix committed suicide. How frequent is that story, even in our culture today? Felix, who was once a slave of Rome, yet worked his way up to a position of power and prominence. Though he had amassed great wealth and great power, there was still a sense of, there was a lack of meaning in his life. There was a depression there that got the best of him. There was never that convenient time. He was empty. And because of that, he took his own life. Felix then, he was trying to please men over God. It says that in order to please the Jews, he left Paul bound. He tried to ignore the conviction that he was feeling. A slave of Rome ascending to the position of governor, amassing wealth, amassing power, yet still empty. 
And we hear this over and over and over again. Yet the world, the world never wants to accept that the solution is the saving faith in Jesus Christ. We will come up with every other option for why somebody does something that they do. We'll come up with every other avenue we can to try and blame something or blame someone for something terrible, for the bad things that happen in this world, yet we refuse as a world, as a society, as an unsaved culture to accept and to believe that it could have something to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is happening this week in our own country. Many of you may be following this. Christians in this world should respond to such terrible situations like the shooting that happened in Florida this week. Another school shooting, a senseless act, a terrible, terrible situation. 17 lives lost that certainly from our perspective were well before their time. But no sooner does the event hit the news than politicians, media, people on social media, Christians who represent the church, everyone involved in some way, shape, or form who tries to involve begins to point blame and tries to come up with that one thing. Here's what it is. Here's why it happened. If we just did this, this wouldn't happen anymore. And naturally, we've seen this week that, as we would expect through this debate, that gun control comes up as one of these key things. And all of a sudden, this terrible atrocity begins to become all about that. And now the fact that I even bring that up, I know for some of you, your heart may be even racing a little bit right now. As you are somewhat fueled by some of these debates as well, right, and are passionate about it, have an opinion as to whether it is related to that or it isn't. And here's the thing, as it relates to what happened this week, there are multiple different things that contributed to that situation, that very sad situation. Is gun control one of them? Well, clearly an element of gun control failed, right? It did. Regardless of where you stand on the spectrum as to whether or not we should have common sense gun laws, or we, or we have the Second Amendment and I have a right to them, or whatever the case may be, something failed there. Now what I'd I'm not intending to put before you this morning is some advocation for gun laws. In fact, what I want to put before you this morning is that for us as the church, we shouldn't even be thinking about that. Here's the deal. I have a CWP. I'm not carrying one right now. I believe in the Constitution of the United States of America. I believe in the Second Amendment. As a believer of Jesus Christ, in this situation, none of that matters. None of that matters. Sadly, for many today who have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, for many who are rejecting the idea of the church, they are rejecting it based off of a fundamental misunderstanding of what the church is all about. Not because they've read the Word of God and studied it intently, but because they've looked at the people who represent the church and they say, I don't want anything to do with that. Because far too often we prioritize our politics over Jesus. And in situations where we're looking to place blame and where people begin to say things like, oh, it has to do with the gun, then all of a sudden those who have somewhat conservative views or who support things like the Second Amendment want to come out strong on social media and want to do everything they can to try and defend that, to say it's not about the gun, it's not about the gun, it's not about the gun, and are missing the opportunity in the platform they've been given to say what it is about is Jesus Christ. That He's the solution to all of this. 
And we must begin to recognize that. Listen, I'm not trying to make a statement about any of those things, but here's the deal. I expect that our government in the days ahead and the months ahead, I expect that they will do something to figure out how to prevent this moving forward. And they very well, the government may arrive at a decision as to how to prevent this from happening that in some way, shape, or form, I disagree with. I think, oh, you know, I don't think that's addressing the real issue. I don't think that's addressing the root cause of this. But I'm going to expect the government to do what the government needs to do. And here's what I will say, that if it somehow infringes on my Second Amendment rights at that time, while I think that that may be a foolish decision, while I think that that probably won't address the root cause of this situation, I'm not going to spend my time trying to fight that, and I certainly don't want the world to think that for me as a pastor that that's what I care about. And so if the government that exists in this country says, hey, I'm going to take that right away, and I'm going to take those guns from you, I'm going to say, you know what? Go ahead and take them. Because rather than saying you can pry my gun out of my cold, dead fingers, I'm going to say this right here is what you will not pry out of my cold, dead fingers. And we have to be willing to take a stand on that. We have to be willing to do that because there are people perishing out there today because they don't even want anything to do with the church. Because they see us many times, and I'm not faulting any one of you out there. This is partially why I'm not on social media very much because I don't want to see some of these things. And so I'm not faulting any one of you, but far too often what the church seems like to people is God, gun, and country. Or, you know, some version of that. And that's so inconsistent with what this says. Furthermore, when I think of a weapon, when I think of the weapon that is most effective, I think of my sword. What does Hebrews 4.12 say? Hebrews 4.11, 11-13. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and of marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. You see, it's the Word of God that discovers the condition of the heart. If an assault rifle was illegal in our country as of the beginning of this year, would that have prevented the shooting in Florida? I don't know. Maybe that one? Maybe, maybe not. If it did, let's assume it did, it certainly wouldn't have changed the heart of the individual that inflicted that violence. And that is not, please understand, that is not my statement today on the idea of gun control. It is my statement that for us as the church, we have to advocate the Word of God because that's what's going to change hearts and minds. And we cannot expect through meaningless debates on social media where we enter into these debates over different constitutional rights that the unsaved is going to understand anything about what we're trying to say. They're not going to get it. They're not going to understand it. The same way that the Jews here that were coming after Paul didn't understand the message that he was sharing because they were resistant to it. Because just like Felix, they had said, no, I don't want to hear that. And so we have much of our world today that has rejected, foundationally and fundamentally has rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so they're not going to get it. And so everything else that stems from that for us in terms of how we think we should live and act and all these other things, it's not going to make sense, so we got to keep giving them Jesus. That's what we have to do. And I don't want to waste any word that I have 
I don't want to waste the 148 characters that I'm given on Twitter to say anything other than what the Word of God has to say, because my words are meaningless. And that's the platform we've been given as Christians, that when we're given the opportunity to speak, we can also trust, just like it says in Luke chapter 9, that the Spirit will give us utterance. So let's be surrendered to Him and say, every opportunity you give me, Lord, every chance I've got to share with an unbeliever, I want to exalt the name of Jesus Christ and share from the Word of God that they might be transformed by the washing of the water of the Word. We're dealing with a lost and dying world, and they don't have the ability to see things the way that believers see it. That's why there's some that are making fun of Mike Pence now and saying he's foolish because he's a Christian and he's lost his mind because he talks to God. Throw me in the insane asylum then. Because I'm as crazy as they come by the world's standard. Because not only do I talk to him, but I hear from him. So look at chapter 25 here. Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul and they petitioned him asking a favor against him that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. So Festus has come into his role now, and Festus is a pretty good governor. Historically, he's given credit for handling things well, for governing things well, for cleaning up some of the mess that Felix left behind. Sadly, Festus is only going to reign for two years, and he's going to have a heart attack and die. But he's a good governor. And we see that because he quickly goes to Jerusalem. Only in a matter of days does he recognize, if I'm going to govern over Jerusalem as part of my area, I need to go and talk to these people. I need to see them. I need to understand what's going on there. It's an influential city and an influential people. And so he goes, and he meets with them there. And here now, it's a new high priest, by the way. It's not the same high priest that was there when they first began to seek Paul out. So there's been regime change. There's been a change of the high priest. And what do they do when he comes to town, but that they immediately seek him out and they say, let's talk about Paul. It has been over two years. I heard one teacher say at one time that it was if they had the dartboard there in the high priest's office with Paul's picture on it every day. You know, just, we got to get this guy. We got to get this guy. Why were they so bent on taking out Paul? Certainly at this point, the 40 plus men who had taken a vow not to eat or drink were really struggling after two years, right? They were sneaking food at night. No, no, I'm still going strong. Two years I haven't eaten. Does this not seem crazy to you that they're still so set on pursuing him? And there's two things I think we need to consider here. The first of which is some of us, we look at this and we say this is crazy, but yet at the same time we deal with the same unforgiveness and bitterness in our own lives. That it may be two years plus that we're refusing to forgive someone. Refusing to let something go. And we all know or should know that when that happens in our lives, when we refuse to forgive and we're hanging on to bitterness, it's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. It's never going to happen. And in fact, in Paul's situation, while he was technically the one in prison, he was as free as could be because he trusted the Lord. He knew that the Lord was in control. But for those who were outside the prison, they were the ones that imprisoned themselves by solely focusing on taking out Paul. They couldn't give it up. But here... Here's something we need to understand about them, though, and I think this gives us even more insight into our interactions with the world today as well, to kind of go back to that parallel. If you turn to John chapter 8, we have here Jesus who is addressing the Pharisees. Let's start in verse 21, John 8, 21. Jesus had earlier in this chapter addressed the Pharisees as they brought accusation against the adulteress. It was the situation where he without sin be the first to cast the stone. And 
one by one, he eliminates them, but they continue on and they continue to argue with him. And here in chapter 21, Jesus is still addressing them. And it says, then Jesus said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Then they said to Him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. He said, I've been telling you this. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you. But He who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from Him. They did not understand that He spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of Myself, but as My Father taught Me, I speak these things. And He who sent Me is with Me. Father has not left Me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. And He spoke these words, and many believed in Him. Then Jesus said to those Jews, verse 31, who believed Him, If you abide in My word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? And Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Jesus is beginning to proclaim to them exactly who He is. He wants them to understand who He is, but they're not getting it. And they're continuing in their pride and their self-righteousness to think that they're okay. Just like our world today. But what we're seeing here is just like the Pharisees, those who we interact with who are unsafe today are not going to understand. Just like the Pharisees said, they say, I don't get it. I don't know it. But Jesus is saying, if you abide in My Word, you'd know it. If you abide in My Word you would know it and you would be free. And what is the emphasis there for us once again, but that we've got to give the world the Word of God. It's this. It's this that they need. They claim that they're Abraham's descendants, which of course physically they are, but spiritually they're not. And Jesus says in verse 37, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my Word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. Who's their father? Satan. Satan. You want to know why the Jews were continuing to pursue Paul? Even after two years, they couldn't stop? Because they wanted to kill him. Because they were led of Satan. The same way that they wanted to kill Jesus here. Because the enemy seeks to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus said, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus said in verse 40, But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them in verse 42, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? because you are not able to listen to my word. The world is not going to understand our speech if they don't know the word. We've got to give them the word. You are of your father, verse 44, the devil, 
and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words, therefore you do not hear, because you are not of God. Jesus is going to go on to further proclaim to them. They're going to ask him, do you mean to say that you've talked with Abraham? Jesus says, I haven't just talked with Abraham before Abraham. I was. I am. And then what do they want to do? They'll pick up stones and kill him. What do we expect when we try and argue and debate with the world about things that the world does not understand? And so the only thing that we can do is to continue to proclaim the Word. And if we are foolishly wasting any platform we've been given to declare anything but, then we are failing at what the Lord has called us to. Jesus here could speak with boldness because He was Jesus. (laughs) Because He's God. But if we look at this from an earthly perspective, what we also see here is that He had undeniable truth on His side. He had the Word of God that He could lay hold of and lay claim to and say, no, this is truth that I proclaim to you. And that's the very same thing that we see happening with Paul, is that he had truth on his side, undeniable truth on his side, so that he could boldly proclaim the message that God had given him. And here as the Jews sought to take Paul's life festus under God's providence, answers to, in verse 4 of chapter 25, that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. Paul had undeniable truth on his side. He could say that none of these accusations are true, and they can't prove a single one of them. And so here Festus hears Paul's accusers. He says to them, you come, come down, bring your accusations against him. There wasn't necessarily a boldness on the part of Festus to say, hey, I really support this guy. But he knew of his innocence. He could tell, he could understand from what he could gather from the case thus far. He says, I'm not going to send him to Jerusalem. You, you come down and make your accusation. But here we will see that for Festus in verse 9, wanting to do the Jews a favor, he answered Paul and said, are you willing, Paul, to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? Now, why did Festus ask Paul that? Why did he give him the opportunity? There's a couple of things here that we have to know. One, as a Roman citizen, unless you were being tried for something incredibly serious, and in this case it was essentially related to some religious matters, that as a Roman citizen he had a choice in it. He could ask Paul, are you willing to go back to Jerusalem or no? And and if Paul said, no, I don't want my case moved, then the case couldn't be moved. But furthermore, for Festus, he saw the problem growing here. What he knew was this man's innocent. But if I use my authority to let this man go, I'm going to have a whole lot of angry Jewish leaders out to get me. And I just came into this role. But if I send him to Rome, to Caesar, and I don't give to Caesar any reason why I'm sending him, then Caesar's going to say, Festus, why aren't you doing your job? So now Festus begins to try and figure out how in the world can he get out of this situation? How can he get out of it? But sadly, he's doing the same thing that Felix had done before him in trying to please men more than pleasing God. And so Paul rightly, with the knowledge and the understanding that if I go back to Jerusalem, 
I'm going to be killed. And though Paul's ready to die, he doesn't want to just go die foolishly. So he says in verse 10, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. Remember what Paul said as he was making his way to Jerusalem, despite the requests of his friends to say, no, don't go. He says, what is this that you say to me? I'm ready to die. I'll die for Jesus Christ. If there's anything that you found against me, then go for it. I'm not afraid, but I've done nothing wrong. But if there's nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. And he had this right as a citizen. This was a law of the land. This is the Caesar appellate. He had the opportunity to say, nope, I'm done with this process. I want to go before Caesar. And he would. He would eventually go before Nero. And at this particular time, Nero still kind of had everything together. He hadn't started to go crazy quite yet. And Paul had no reason to think that he wouldn't receive a fair trial before Nero. Then Festus in verse 12, when he had conferred with the council, answered, you have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. And so Festus, trying to rid himself of this problem, now knows that, okay, he's going to go there, but I've still got to figure out what I'm going to say about this guy before I send him there. What's the reason for it? Why am I going to send him? And this had to have just, man, it had to get the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees in particular, because what happened here was Paul, in a moment, took himself out of their hands because they wouldn't make their way to Rome to advocate for themselves. They wouldn't go to argue against Paul, and so now Paul was going to go. And in verse 13, And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. When they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus whom had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. And so this is pretty incredible what we see here within this now. First of all, let's not forget Paul's conversion in Acts 9.15. And what was it that the Lord said about Paul, but that this is my chosen servant. To him, he will preach to Gentiles and to kings. And so lo and behold, look at the faithfulness of God in carrying out His plan and purpose in an individual's life even 10 or 20 years after the fact. That now Paul has been able to stand before the Jews, before the Sanhedrin, before Governor Felix, before Governor Festus, and now before King Agrippa. What a platform he's being given. And how exactly does Paul use that platform? We'll see more in depth next week as we dive into 26, but Festus gives us an understanding of it right here within these verses as he says he spoke of a man named Jesus. Do you think that Paul could have absolutely addressed them as a Roman citizen? 
Do you think in the incredible knowledge that Paul had amassed, that in the eloquence of his speech he could have articulated his own freedom? He could have said, there's no reason why you should hold me here. You must let me go. He could have come at him from a million different directions, but he didn't. What does he do? And we'll see this again further. But he shares his testimony. He shares of what Jesus has done in his life. He gives them the gospel. A certain Jesus, as it was said. And so it was clear that Paul preached Jesus to them. And then we know Paul was addressing the resurrection. That was a big part of the claim that was against him. Remember, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. And you know, it's interesting too, when we hear about that, that here as he talks about the resurrection, you know, a lot of times when we think of the resurrection, we think of only Jesus. And rightfully so. Because we know that it's our Savior who was resurrected. But for them, the Jews believed in a resurrection. They knew that it was going to happen. The Pharisees understood that there would be a resurrection, both of the just and the unjust. What they debated over was whether or not that was Jesus, whether He was the Messiah, whether He was the one who was resurrected. But Paul gave them Jesus. And Christian, may I submit to you, may I exhort you, may I ask of you that if you want to engage in some way, shape, or form in the public forum, if you want to make a comment to a world that is lost, then let's not advocate or give them a political party's platform. Let's not give some argument over our freedoms. Let's not give them psychology or anything else that's found under the sun. But let's give them Jesus. Amen? Can we commit to giving them the Word of God? Can we, perhaps even this small remnant here of Calvary Chapel Northeast, commit to saying, you know what? Sure, I have an opinion on all of these different things, but if anybody's going to listen to a single opinion that I have, I'm going to make sure it's rooted within the Word of God. That we could be a body of believers that commits to that. To not engaging in foolish debate, to not getting sucked into all these other things, but to exalt the name of Jesus Christ, to magnify His name. Amen? If you're concerned about what to give them. You know, maybe you're like, oh, you know, I, I miss opportunities to do this. Be in prayer about that. Be in constant prayer about the interactions that you have. Start each day with prayer committed to say, Lord, I want to live for you today. I'm going to interact with people today. I'm going to have phone calls. I'm going to have opportunities. Lord, help me to be led of the Spirit, to be sensitive in every situation, what it is that you would want me to share. Shut my mouth when it needs shut. Open it when it needs to be opened. In Luke chapter 12, I referenced it earlier, Luke chapter 12, verse 8. Also I say to you, this is Jesus, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that you can start your day out, bathed in prayer, surrendered to the Spirit, and to say, Lord, you're going to lead me and guide me today? and the experiences that you'll have, the way you'll feel at the end of that day when you know you've been obedient to proclaiming the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. When a world wants to fight about everything else and wants to point fingers at everything else and wants to blame all these different things and suggest that this is the reason and this is the reason, knowing that we know the reason, we know the change, we know what it will take 
to prevent terrible things like that from happening again. It's a change of the heart and the mind, and that only comes through the Word of God and surrender to Jesus Christ. We can be the people that the Lord can use to bring that message to a lost and dying world. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks this morning once again for your Word. Your Word which you exalt above your own name, Lord, may we see it as truly that. May we recognize today in the midst of such debate that while we have opinions, and even opinions that will be rooted in sound logic and knowledge, that, Lord, there's a world out there that's perishing that cares little for our opinions, that cares little for our politics, that sadly has such a misunderstanding oftentimes of what the church is all about, that somehow along the way many within the church have created this idea that to be an American means to be a Christian, and to be a Christian means to be an American, and so many different flawed perspectives. Lord, may we all be grateful for the freedoms we enjoy. May we all use the freedoms, Lord, to vote and to advocate. But Lord, I pray that we would, each and every one of us, Lord, myself included, never miss an opportunity to share the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that will change. It's the only thing that will change hearts and minds. So give us boldness in that, Lord. Bring to remembrance each and every morning for every one of us, Lord, the dependence we should have on You. Cause us to fall to our knees every moment that we can, Lord, and surrender in humility before You to ask for Your leading and Your guidance. Like Paul, may we begin to foster and develop a spirit that prays without ceasing in constant communion with You, Lord, that we could have confidence that we're growing in our knowledge of You, that we're being led by You. May we learn to treasure the greatest weapon that we've been given, and that's the Word of God, the sword, which can pierce a man to the uttermost and bring life. Help us, Lord, to represent You in a way that brings You glory, that magnifies Your name, that brings peace, Lord, into a world of chaos. Father, help us to be faithful in that, Lord, I pray. Father, do this work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.